So the big question is this, how do investors like us get access to the ideas, information, and most importantly, the right people that give us the tools and information we need to make informed and educated decisions to have success? That is the question, and this podcast will give us the answers. This is Mark Moss, your host. Let's get this started. Welcome to another episode of the Market Disruptors podcast. Today, we are sitting down with Ulta Andoni from Ziliac Law, and she is a an attorney and she's a professor. She works in antitrust, financial services, money laundering, things like that. And we have a really co- interesting conversation. We get into what's going on with the regulations, with Binance shutting down to U.S. customers, Bittrex and Poloniex shutting off certain assets to U.S. customers, what that means for the U.S., what that means for the world. We also get into further discussions on regulations talking about the U.S. and China trade wars, what's going on with that, how that could be proxy for other wars, and again, what that means for U.S. and Chinese investors moving forward. This is a very important conversation, helps us to understand what is happening now, but also what's happening in the future. And as an investor, you need to be paying attention. So let's jump right into this. All right. Welcome, everybody, to the Market Disruptors podcast. Today, we are joined by Ulta Andoni with Ziliac Law. She is an attorney that focuses on uh, financial services, uh, money laundering, antitrust, and blockchain technology stuff. She's also a professor um, at the Chicago Kent College of Law. And so she's got this really unique perspective um, on a bunch of different topics. There's so much stuff we could talk about today. We'll try and keep it uh, short for you guys. But anyway, uh, Ulta, welcome to the show. Uh, thank you so much, Mark, for having me here today. Yeah, awesome. I'm super excited about this. So, um, just so to kind of set this up, I, I kind of announced who you were, but why don't you tell us a little bit about your background and how you got involved into the crypto space and what you're doing? Of course, of course. I'd love to do that. And uh, so you mentioned that I'm an attorney. I'm an attorney uh, by training, as I always say, and I'm also a professor and adjunct professor at Chicago Kent and professor for School of American Law at Chicago Kent, where I lecture on antitrust law, international business transactions, comparative law. I, I do travel around the world because we have all our branches around the world, and I love to do this. And now... Uh, uh, meeting all the international students and then they come back to Chicago Kent and uh, uh, finalize their studies in the LLM in that specific uh, uh, law area that they're going to graduate. I also, uh, right now, I am the head of blockchain practice at Ziliac Law, where I help my clients kind of browse this very interesting industry and uh, help them with different areas on uh, compliance with our securities law and uh, KYC and AML, etc. I love to work in this space because I find it very interesting and the way how I got involved uh, we all have that rabbit hole as we uh, call it yeah. uh, but myself was mostly on a academic side because I love to research and obviously I heard about Bitcoin very early but then when I uh, when I read the Bitcoin paper I was a little bit skeptical about how much I mean this virtual currency can uh, can achieve, you know. But then in 2017, I lectured in China 
And it was quite interesting that when I was going out with my students for lunches or dinners, like I could hear like everybody talk about Bitcoin and especially these old couples. And I was like, since everyone is so excited about Bitcoin, definitely I have to explore this further because it looks like something big is coming up. Furthermore, at Chicago Kent, we have like different conferences on fintech and we have like some great speakers coming each year. So that was another area that kind of pushed me to explore this uh, industry a little bit further and to kind of combine my previous experience in intellectual property and financial market compliance together. And uh, that's why right now I'm, I'm mostly uh, concentrating and focusing more on uh, crypto and blockchain technology. Great. That's, that's, that's awesome. I, I'm curious, you said when you first um, read the white paper, you were skeptical. Now, were you skeptical of the technology or were you skeptical of again mass adoption or were you skeptical of if, if regulate, regulators would ever allow it to grow? What, what were you skeptical of? I, I, I was more, and that is a great question, actually. I was more skeptical about the mass adoption. And it's not that I want to state that I was right, but even right now, we don't have like a mass adoption when it comes to crypto. So I was like, and, and I tried to explain this uh, to several people, like even in my own family, like my husband, he's a technology guy. And he was in the moment that I explained to him, he was not a big believer. And, 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 and not only him, but, you know, crypto is quite an interesting concept for people, but you really have to understand the technology behind it. And you really have to understand how it functions and what are like some, uh, uh, some characteristics that really make this uh, kind of stand out. Well, and yeah, I, yes and no though, right? So like, I think with any new technology, first of all, we have to realize it takes time and you have to be patient. Of course, um, yes. think, you know, in the beginning, the true believers, they want to know that. But, um, you know, if you look at the Internet, it, it took, you know, from the DARPA days, you know, 30 years before it reached, reached adoption. And um, you're not, anyone that was going to use the um, Internet was like, hey, you can send an email. But you don't have to explain how the computer digitizes that packet and plugs into an Ethernet and sends the packets over a thing. And then the computer opens those packets and puts it back. In. Like, you don't explain that. And so I think that's where people get hung up with the blockchain. It's like, no, let me explain how blockchain works and the different. And like, nobody cares. I mean, not, not, the, not the mass adoption, right? They just want to know, does it work? But I agree. But how many people do we have right now that they don't know how to use the internet, though? Well, I mean, we'll never get to 100%. Like, when you look at technology cycles, I mean, to get like 70, 80% adoption is pretty good. Um, and I but, don't think we have that. Do we have that for the internet right now? I mean, I'm not trying to argue, but I do know that even for, I mean, this is always the counter argument that is kind of brought up for blockchain technology. And I don't think that, uh, I mean, obviously we have a much more mass adoption for the internet, but it's just interesting to, uh, to, to see that so many people still don't know how to use the internet out there. So right. obviously <laughs> we need our time when it comes to the crypto and the blockchain yeah. industry. I, I say it takes a couple of generations, of you know, course. like I still have like, uh, you know, obviously there's still some grandmothers out there that don't use the internet, but then the kids, the grandkids today will never know anything other than that. And so it kind of takes a couple of generations sometimes to see a full adoption shift. But uh, anyway, that's a, that's a great story that, that you have and, and uh, interesting how you were skeptical of that at first. Um, now I know you have like this, uh, 
you know, this, this kind of specialty in financial services and, and, uh, and, and, and whatnot. We were originally talking about the big news that had happened a week ago. Now it's kind of being uh, with Binance. And now it's kind of being overshadowed a little bit by the news that broke yesterday about Facebook. But um, sticking to Binance, um, they made a really big news. Now they're like the largest exchange in the world by volume. And they basically decided to get rid of U.S. customers. What do you think about that? Uh, obviously, that was a big news, even though I, I, I think like this week, Facebook news, Facebook news was kind of bigger than Binance. Yeah. But, yeah. But I'd love to talk a little bit more about Binance. And uh, personally, I was not surprised about this move from Binance. And uh, obviously, Binance was not the very first exchange kind of moving with these restrictions on market availability because I think, uh, and I, I hope the listeners uh, recall that actually it was Bitfinex. Uh, if I recall correctly, it was Bitfinex that began kind of distancing itself from the New York users in 2017. And they also bared the New York customers and then U.S. individual customers. I think this was yeah. back in 2000, August of 2017. And then they kind of blocked or escalated this to banning all U.S. entities in August of 2018. So we have seen some signs out there. And I'm not surprised by the Binance move. Something that surprises me is that, okay, I think was on June, on June 1st when they announced that their users are uh, they're going to start this geo-blocking policy to 29 countries uh, and then they're starting I think July 1st if I'm not mistaken but then on September 12th they're claiming that they're not going to accept any U.S. users anymore but if you read like that kind of uh, uh, announcement very carefully they state that they're going to have apparently binance america is going to be launched at the same time so in my opinion this was quite a very well thought uh strategy or movement on their side and uh, and then previously we also had bitrex i think bitrex was like last Friday, if I'm not mistaken, and it was like very late Friday, which is interesting. Like, how can you advertise this market availability or changes in your mar market availability like on a very late Friday night? Because they, uh, I, I don't know if you saw that tweet that they stated that they are following uh, the same move that, uh, I mean, by Polyonex and Polyonex decided to block like trading for US customers on nine crypto cryptocurrencies or so yep. so we have seen like so many of this something interesting was even uh i i was not uh aware of tax exchange are you like that was interesting like tax exchange they terminated their operation completely on july 6 i mean obviously because of this regulatory uh kind of which exchange uh, tax mm, no tax I don't know. yeah so, so just, no, I, yeah. so just to catch everybody up, if you if you haven't been paying attention to the news, um, like I said, Binance, the largest exchange in the world, has decided to get U.S. users off. But <laughs> the previous largest exchanges, which uh, at least in the U.S. were Bittrex and Poloniex, which used to be major players in the space before Binance came up, and they're U.S. based, 
And what they decided at the same time as, as uh, Ulta Sane is that they decided to what they call geofence or basically make certain assets on their exchange um, not tradable by U.S. residents. So the, so the assets are still there and they're still tradable by people outside the U.S., but people inside the U.S. aren't able to trade those certain assets. Um, and then Binance, which is not a U.S. company, just decided to kick all U.S. users off uh, similar to what Bitfinex has done. Now, it's kind of different. I, do you have any thoughts on to why Binance wouldn't have just um, restricted um, access to certain assets by U.S. Uh, residents similar to Bitrix or Poloniex versus just kicking everybody off and trying to start a completely different um, exchange? Uh, I, I think that that's a great question, Mark. I, but I think that uh, uh, Binance is kind of concentrating mostly, especially lately in kind of setting this industry standard. And why am I saying that? I, I mean, obviously I follow CZ and I think that despite whatever other things we may think of Binance, I think that he's a hard worker. He's a smart guy. He's a visionary in this space. But I did see a very interesting tweet from him uh, that he mentioned that, uh, first of all, if uh, you are going to consider, um, I think someone kind of asked him the question, like, why did you do this? Like, why did you... Uh, 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 kind of stand up, why didn't you not stand up to the U.S. regulators? And what's interesting, because he mentioned that you have to read the book, The uh, Starfish and the Spider, and I don't know, and I, I kind of searched that a little bit more, and I found out that he's pretty much referring to this analogy that, or he's contrasting this to the decentralized companies and how decentralized companies kind of can change this space. Uh, uh, the spider and the starfish analogy refers pretty much to the contrasting biological nature of this respective organism, you know. So starfish having this decentralized neural structure and kind of permitting this regeneration. And it, so pretty much if you cut uh, if you cut off a spider's head, it dies, but then if you cut off the starfish legs, it grows. You know what I mean? So he was kind of very interesting analogy in his perspective. So I kind of like that. And I like to see these exchanges to be a little bit more compliant in this space. And I'm very happy to, to see that, especially from Binance. And the other thing is that uh, not only they're concentrating most, mostly on this compliance in this space, but at the same time, I, I hope that we're not going to have this feedback like uh, we got with Binance. And what do I mean by that? Like always we have like two camps in this industry. And one or the first camp is, hey, uh, has this industry, industry been sufficiently self-regulated or actually do we need a little bit more regulation? And of course, like that's a very good question, but at the same time, what sort of regulation or, or what sort of regulatory certainty are these exchanges looking for? Mm -hmm. Yeah, um, I'm just curious though, like what that regula regulation is, right? So um, what we've seen again, back to Bittrex and Polonix, they've restricted assets, certain assets to U.S. residents. But the list, the list seems to be 
different across exchanges. So Coinbase seems to have like their own list that they think um, of coins that are that are good. Poloniex, Bitrix, they they seem to work off of different lists. Is that is that true? And if so, why is that? I, I think that's true, and I think that each and every one of these exchanges, obviously, they have their own legal consults and this is not legal advice but of course that they get like different uh, legal advice from their consuls I mean some of them are very conservative and some of them know and I'm not saying that they know the space much better than the other ones but this is one of those industries that you really have to keep up to date and uh, if we're going back and to the reasons why these exchanges are doing this like definitely there's some strong reasons because we have seen a lot of more from our regulatory agencies, from our uh, regulatory bodies. Like we had the statement on framework for investment uh, contract analysis back in April of, I mean, April of this year, we had uh, furthermore more as I said, like uh, actions, enforcement actions from the SEC against Air Force, Paragon, and other companies. We uh, Right now, we have the Financial Action Task Form. And furthermore, I don't know if our listeners are much aware of this, but we had a recent guidance also from our U.S. Treasury Department. And I think Lately, they uh, stated that it takes, I mean, they're taking this broader view when it comes to their authority to regulation or to crypto businesses. And definitely they're trying to bring a little bit more civil uh, civil actions and in, uh, including anti-money laundering actions because prosecutors, obviously, they're proceeding with their criminal cases in this space. So I think like we are kind of tightening up our uh, compliance and our regulatory space right now. So that's why I think that these exchanges are feeling the need to kind of be a little bit more compliant, not a little bit more compliant, but kind of to understand exactly that if they want to be compliant in the United States, they really have to make sure that they follow all the needed steps and comply with our uh, regulatory bodies or agencies. Yeah. And the problem is, is as you're saying, I guess, is that because there's no clear guidance, that's why we're seeing a discrepancy in the coins or the assets or projects that are being geofenced or, or blocking U.S. residents. Um, so I guess, right, that's what you're saying. So there's lack of guidance or lack of clarity, and that's why some exchanges have some assets and some exchanges have other assets. I, I agree on that, but we're not going to have – I, that clear guidance until we have a judicial decision right. or a little bit more of a formal SEC uh, rulemaking decision, right? So for now, obviously, we're expecting what's going to happen with SEC big kick, but right now we don't have a little bit more guidance, uh, as we call it, from a precedent. However, I, I mean, I like the involvement of all the players in this, in this industry, and I like the fact that the SEC especially is welcoming all this feedback from all the participants in this space. And I think we all should appreciate that. I mean, in every single event that one of the SEC representatives is there, you do see that they do have the intention uh, to, to help the people understand uh, and how to be compliant in this space and furthermore to invite them in this dialogue. So I think that is very important for all of us. 
Okay, good. Um, so let's talk about what this means for the average person and why they should even care about this news. So obviously, if you're in the US, you're affected because now you're being blocked out of certain things. I guess as an investor, there's just because you're blocked out of Binance, which is the largest exchange in the world, um, a lot of those assets you can still find on other exchanges to buy or, or exchange for, I suppose. I think the ones that are really affected by this the most are the traders. And although I'm a hodler and I think people should be investing for the long term, most of the market is driven by speculation at this point. That's how new techno technology cycles work. And so the traders are really going to suffer because there's no liquidity on these other exchanges. It's all on Bittrex. So what do you think that means, uh, I guess, in the short term or maybe even the long term to U.S. residents? Are they just uh, going to be missing out on this or do you think something's going to open up for them in the near future? I, I, I'm, I'm a big believer and I'm not going to comment much on this, but I think something is going to open, to open up for them in the future. Uh, right. Uh, I mean, that's my opinion, but maybe I'm being overly optimistic right now. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Yeah. Hopefully, hopefully things find a way. Now you had mentioned earlier uh, in, with, with CZ talking about the, the starfish and the spider and really you were kind of referring to decentralized uh, systems. And so then that kind of, we're talking about exchanges. So of course that leads to decentralized exchanges, which for years I've believed and stated that I believe it's the most important piece of the entire ecosystem because Bitcoin and other cryptocurrencies are designed to be peer to peer non-custodial, non, uh, you know, no, without counterparty risk, et cetera. And going to a centralized exchange basically kills the whole thing. So I believe decentralized exchanges are a big thing, although they haven't really taken off because of poor UI, UX, poor liquidity, whatever. But what do you see being the future? I mean, obviously, as you said, CZ talked about it. They are launching their own decentralized exchange, but that decentralized exchange is still basically a centralized exchange because they're still controlling access like U.S. residents can't um, access that. So what do you think CZ's comments and what do you think about decentralized exchanges kind of moving forward? Uh, that is another great question. And I'm going to go back to the analogy that uh, CZ used in his tweet because, as I said, I kind of this was an audiobook, uh, The Starfish and the Spider. And it's interesting that they mentioned there, the, I, I don't know if you're aware of the MGM when they were trying to crack down on the peer-to-peer -peer music website, Grokster. And, uh, and then I think they won those lawsuits. And then other groups, I think was Kaza and Emule kind of got, uh, they, they surfaced out of this uh, whole movement. So my point is that I, I think that he's trying to rely mostly on this smaller organization that are more like starfish. And if their limb is kind of uh, severed. I mean, it to me it looks like he's relying mostly on decentralized decentralization. But the problem that I have with that is that right now, even in the United States, when we go back to the test of being sufficiently decentralized, I don't think we're coming up with the right definition. What is sufficiently 
decentralized. When does that sufficiently decentralized happen, you know? And unless we have, and this is not only a guidance from the SEC or from our regulators, but I think that it's very important for some definitions in this space to have a little bit more meaning from all, for all the participants, even when it comes to the cryptocurrency, what is cryptocurrency? Well, what I, think, I, I think we have a perfect example of what is decentralized right now today, right? right? With, with Facebook Libra start uh, announcing that they're launching their coin and within the same day you have uh, governments all around the world saying, no, you're not, stop that, right? Um, nobody's gonna tell Bitcoin to stop that there's no one to tell <laughs> who are they, they going to tell right i think that's a perfect illustration of what is decentralized and so uh when i talk about a decentralized exchange i mean i would think about it in the same way which is uh is there somebody that can be squeezed or leaned on to stop it or is it decentralized enough that it can run on its own but do we have that right now uh not <laughs> in a good way i i think we need it and that's what i'm saying I, I think we need it and it seemed like that's maybe what CZ was referring to. I didn't hear his comment, nor have I read the book. But um, I know, like I said, they, they're coming out with a decentralized exchange. But what's decentralized about it? If it's still centrally controlled, um, I'm still facing counterparty risk. Um, it can still be leaned and squeezed, et cetera. I guess maybe, you know, so anyway, I, I think there's this future where we do have that. But I, I guess what's your perspective on that based off of, regulators and KYC AML and what regulators want to do to squeeze these things. I mean, do you see a future where we have a truly decentralized exchange? I personally don't see that. I mean, I would hope that uh, we'll have a little bit more, uh, not only enforcement actions, but the more we see uh, as far as definitions, I think that's going to be more helpful to us, but I don't think that's going to happen anytime in the near future. So maybe I'm a little bit pessimistic on that, uh, but it would be very nice for this industry to kind of have something very straightforward, uh, especially after covering this uh, decentralization concept. I typically like to talk about facts, but I want to dig into just a little bit of opinion here, just because I'm curious. Um, so, Obviously, all these regulations go into, you know, control and, and uh, tracking and uh, obviously they use KYC AML. AML is anti-money laundering, right? And, and, and everyone's so concerned about money laundering because of terrorism. But it really has only been about the last maybe 30 years that they've been able to really track this. I mean, we were in a cash world. You know, we've seen time and time again, whether that be you know, under, under the Obama, um, uh, uh, under the Obama campaign, you know, sending, uh, hundreds of millions of dollars to Iran in cash on an airplane or whatever. I mean, that, that's terrorism. And we've seen the banks being fined for billions and billions of dollars in transactions. Um, do you, you think this is a fight that, uh, is necessary or is it more just a, like, is it, is it really effective in fighting terrorism and doing what they want it to do? Or is it really just about control? I think it's very, I, I mean, definitely it's very important to fight terrorism, but I, I, I would just kind of rely a little bit more on both, like even to kind of establish that control. Uh, and this is more of a political approach, I would say, more than a, you know, compliance or regulatory approach. And, uh, but it's, it's, it's interesting to see how this is going to move on forward. 
Yeah, I mean, it really then, you know, the thing with uh, the thing with Bitcoin that's just so interesting is it's just it's multidisciplinary and, and you being a professor, I'm sure you get it more than most. But you I mean, you have to understand technology, you have to understand money, you have to understand banking, you have to understand economics, you have to understand philosophy, right? You have to understand human incentives, you have to understand all of these things to really get it, uh, which is why I'm super fascinated by it. Um, and so, yeah, you and I'm sorry for interrupting. It's like, doesn't every, like when I talk about the, especially the Bitcoin white paper and then the books and I mean, I'm sure you're very much aware of Silk Road and sure. Silk Road did. So majority of the people, in my opinion, who get involved in this space or who just start, who just start getting involved in this space, I think that's, especially for myself, like that's the very first question that I get from these people that, hey, but Silk Road, what was the purpose? Like, what were they doing? And why are you in this industry, so to speak? And it's interesting to, to I mean, to get that sort of feedback. Well, then you start, I mean, yeah, then you start getting into philosophy and then you start getting into politics, of course, right? So um, we, we can get into those. I don't want to dive too deep into those rabbit holes. But overall, um, you know, I, I, I just kind of, with Bitcoin, you lean towards Austrian economics, free markets, and then that leads more like free, free politics and then more like libertarian views. And like, if I'm not hurting you, then what's, what, then what's the difference? And, you know, obviously a lot of people, including myself, uh, have a problem with anybody, especially the state telling me what I can put in my body or what I can't put in my body, forcing me to put stuff in my body or making it illegal for me not to put like, that's, that's my body. Like, who are you? Like, so, and, and we can look at every war the government has led, whether that be the war on poverty, the war on terrorism, the war on drugs, they've all failed. And they've all made problems worse. And that's a whole nother topic or discussion. Uh, and so maybe I shouldn't maybe even open up. <laughs> I shouldn't even open that door, maybe. Because <laughs> uh, that's not what we're really talking about. But it leads to that just because uh, we're talking about regulations. And, and I've seen, you know, I've seen comments from like Christine Lagarde or, you know, people from the IMF and the BIS. And, and I quoted her on a Twitter post and it was her quote, and I don't know it exactly, but basically she said, we must stop innovation because it threatens our stability. And I'm just like, wait, what? Like, <laughs> did she just say that? And yes, she did. And that's what these regulators want to do is stop innovation. That was her quote. Um, and I just, I just, I don't like that. I don't like seeing regula regulations being used, uh, you know, to entrench positions by, you know, legacy, legacy systems or whatever, right? We need to in innovate. We need to create more freedom, create more prosperity, create more equality. And uh, so anyway, that's where I start. All of a sudden it goes to that philosophy, political debate about regulations. Um, are they, are they doing more harm than good? Uh, you know, so to speak. And, and, and I agree with you, but at the same time, I feel like Europe has completely different approach toward innovation. And I'm not saying that they're supporting innovation less or more, but I think here in the United States, even though we have more conservative uh, regulatory kind of framework and compliance, I think that our regulators, at least they're not stating that, like they're trying to understand. You have Hester Pierce, like every time she's been so much uh, supportive of this. Yeah, she's been great. She's amazing. Yeah. And I love every time like 
uh, it, it, it's not only her arguments, but if you hear to, uh, if you listen to her speeches, especially recently, I, like you understand that our regulators, at least they're trying to understand not only the technology, which I'm sure like by now they, they have a better understanding, but at the same time, they're trying to help us all navigate this industry. And I really appreciate that. And I think that Europe has a completely different uh, uh, approach. And I do see that since I lecture a lot in Europe and I lecture antitrust law. So antitrust law in US is competition law in Europe. So definitely I can see exactly those different approaches or, the, or, or those point of views from where these regulators are coming from. And you can see that even the way how they approach our uh, uh, biggest companies, like, you know, the actions, and I don't want to go into antitrust because then I'm going to talk one more hour here, but I'm sure you're very much aware of the actions against Google and why they did that. And uh, at the same time, I'm a big believer that, I mean, even though these companies are growing and growing, but that, I mean, they're providing some very great benefits for our customers for, for, I mean, for, for, you and myself and I think that is very important so uh, it's I think that the perspective that uh, or the way how they analyze these strategies and these industries is especially when it comes to innovation is quite different I agree that's some good stuff uh, I, I, I want to talk about where this then keeps leading us if we keep want to keep diving into the rabbit hole and so um, I know you've talked a lot about uh, about some of these trade wars that are going on and, and where we are with, uh, you know, the U S versus China, et cetera. And uh, it gets out of, it gets out of crypto a little bit, but it doesn't because, you know, crypto is about the financial system. And so the trade wars are obviously a big piece of that. And so I know you've written extensively about that. Maybe just give us a high level, uh, kind of overview of what, what you see going on and what you've been talking about there. Of course, and I'd love to cover this since uh, the G20 uh, is coming, the G20 meeting is coming up next week. So obviously for our listeners, I'm sure they're very much aware that President Trump decided to meet with the China president. But I think it's going to be uh, somewhat beneficial for our listeners if I just mention a little bit or I talk a little bit about the timeline in the US-China trade war, uh, because there are some very important dates that I think kind of emphasize what's going on or what's happening right now uh is that okay if i just walk our listeners through this timeline yeah please so uh i mean i think it started back in 2017 if i'm not mistaken when uh our united states trade representative they started this uh investigation into the unfair chinese trade practices of course they were pursuant to our section 301 of the trade act of 1974 then on march of 2018 we had this big report from the united states uh trade representative stating all these unfair practices and that was the reason why on july of 2018 we had united states imposing the tariffs on 30 billion of chinese imports 
So that was kind of sort of the first movement. And after the United States imposed those tariffs on these 30 billion of Chinese imports, then uh, I think that it was back on August of 2018 that Chinese kind of retaliated with tariffs on the 16 billion of so of U.S. imports. So this was like a back and forth and back and forth uh, retaliation strategy. And then of, on September of 2018, again, United States imposed uh, these tariffs on, I think, 200 billion of Chinese imports. So obviously, you can see the impact that these are going to have, uh, I mean, in between both countries. But I think recently, especially this week, uh, I hope that our listeners, I mean, um, are very much aware of uh, the China-U.S. trade war because there's been so much happening. And uh, especially the uh, companies, the big companies in the United States, they started filing this, uh, uh, I think yesterday was the HP, Intel, and Microsoft. And they joined this uh, movement to oppose the Trump tariffs. And this was for laptop computers, this was for tablets, because these are going to be among those 300 billion tariffs in Chinese goods. And then we had another filing from the book publishers. I think I saw this yesterday. Uh, I think they're claiming that they're imploring the President Trump to not impose the Bible tax. They call that the Bible tax because this proposed tariff is going to impact also the China, uh, I mean, Chinese goods and it is going to include the printed materials in this Chinese goods. My point is that I am uh, very much optimistic, at least about the fact that uh, this administration is considering the hearing. There is a hearing ceremony for our listeners if they want to know a little bit more about that. And I think it started, it's going through June 25th. So for people that want to comment on that, I think there must be a link. And the impact that this is going to have in our uh, uh, U.S. Uh, economy, I think that I mean, definitely we see a little bit of impact, but uh, I think that probably China is going to see a little bit more impact. And from my inside sources there, uh, they mentioned that there is sort of this uncertainty in the space. And uh, obviously you have many uh, major manufacturers kind of moving out of China because of this China trade war policy. But I hope that during this G20 meet, hopefully our president and the Chinese president are going to be able to work this out. Why do you think uh, the average person, or I should say not the average person, but why does the investor uh, care? Why, 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 would, why as an investor do I need to be paying attention to this and what am I looking the for? The investor where? In the United States or in China? Well, I guess either. I mean, I invest in both and I'm in the United States, but I invest into China as well. But why do so, I care about this? Uh, if you, I mean, if you're an investor in China, obviously you're going to feel this because obviously, I mean, the prices, the manufacturing prices are going to be higher and no wonder, especially I heard that a lot of Japanese manufacturers, they're moving their plants outside China. So even though, I, I, I mean, that might be a little bit impacted from different other political reasons, because I think that Japanese, they always have this sort of law for United States 
States for President Trump. And I don't want to go into politics, but I mean, definitely, uh, I mean, right now, we can see exactly what President did, President Trump did in relation to North Korea and how, I mean, he's handling this whole trade war with China. My point is that definitely that is going to impact you as an investor because it's going to go back to the pricing and it's going to be back to, I mean, to, to your- It's gonna go back to profit. So the prices go up, companies become yeah. less profitable. <laughs> they miss their earnings reports and the stock tumbles down. We've already seen that in the United States uh, when this really was heating up a month or two ago. We saw the stocks take a tumble. Um, so that, that's, that's something that uh, as an investor, you should be paying attention to just because it really can affect the profitability, which then affects the share price and, and et cetera. Course, I think in addition, course. if you're investing into China um, and jobs and factories are moving out of China, that's definitely something that you should be aware of as well. Um, I'm curious, and again, I guess maybe getting into some more opinion, but um, have you been seeing how China, Russia, and Iran have been trading oil outside of the U.S. dollar? Uh, yes, I've seen that. Yeah. So uh, I'm curious um, if you want to if you want to jump on this grenade, uh, but you know, I've, the, the U.S. The, the U.S. dollar obviously is, me right there. What's that? You just warned me right there. Yeah. Uh, so the you know the U.S. dollar uses its its power as a world reserve currency to to issue sanctions across countries. Right. That's our big power. And uh, we saw Rep. Sherman in California actually state this is a problem with Bitcoin is it takes away the power to slap sanctions. Um, and and because of those sanctions against countries like Iran, Russia, China have said yeah we'll just do stuff outside the U.S. dollar. Then um, the U.S. has a history of trying to protect the dollar's um, reserve status. Uh, I'm just curious, do you think some of these uh, trade wars could be like maybe proxy wars for uh, the, the real currency wars? I think so. I think so. And yeah. I mean, maybe I should say unfortunately, but yeah, I, I do see that happening. Because I mean, the U.S. has a history of having wars with countries um, and many people, and I'm not stating this as fact, but many people yeah. have brought up the um, the point that a lot of these countries we go in and invade are countries that are not on, you know, the U.S. dollar banking system, et cetera. Um, and uh, China is not really a country you want to go to war with. Uh, but these are like proxy wars, maybe. I mean, they're off, obviously financial. So that's interesting. And but I, I don't think that's going to be beneficial to any of the countries, honestly. And as I said, that's why I hope that. Uh, and I'm curious, actually, just to go back, I think today the uh, governor, uh, governor of Bank of Japan, I don't recall his name, but I think he was supposed to hold this news conference today where he was expected to give some analysis on the U.S.-China uh, trade war. And I was very curious to hear a little bit more about that because, I mean, definitely we don't want this to have a, uh, a strong impact, but probably if I were to kind of guess the impact of uh, U.S.-China trade war, I'd see that having a stronger impact, especially on the world economic gr growth for next year. I mean, maybe we don't feel that right away, but, uh, and I'm not one of those economist analysts, but I do a lot of research as an acad academic, obviously. And that's why I think probably that is one of the, going to be one of the strongest impacts of this uh, China-US war, especially when it comes to the investment in China and the decline, the consumer spending growth in the United States and in China as well. So that would be interesting to see. Yeah.
<laughs> now let's try and uh, let's try and future cast this a little bit. Um, you know, I I I think like I said before, you you watch those movies where they go back in in time and they change one little thing and then they go back to the future and the whole future is different. And we can so we can understand they call it like the butterfly effect. So we it, if we can look at things that are happening today and we can kind of maybe go, wow, look what this is going to do in the future. And so. Um, couple things that I'm focusing on and really uh, because we're both in the United States, maybe more U.S. centered or focused. But if we look at like what's going on in the U.S. right now with regulations, um, not only are U.S. companies moving out of the U.S. because of the blockchain regulations, but then we have um, companies that are in the U.S. still like Bitrim and Poloniex just saying, well, U.S. people can't be in this. And then Binance just shutting people off altogether like, like Bitfinex, et cetera. Um, what do you think that means for the future? I mean, so it, it looks like to me, uh, the U S is not only moving companies out of the U S but also prohibiting U S people from taking advantage of this. Do you see that happening? And do you think that is going to continue to get better or get worse? I hope that that is going to continue to get better. And I would like to argue a little bit with you here. Yeah, please. Uh, well, don't argue, but you can go ahead and say your question. <laughs> <laughs> I, mean, I, am, uh, I mean, I disagree that uh, the companies are moving out just to be compliant in other countries. First of all, I think that uh, if you want to be compliant in United States, you do have pretty much everything when it comes to their, I mean, these companies, they know exactly what they're supposed to do to be compliant in the United States. Of course, we need a little bit more guidance. Of course, this is still a little bit of a murky area when it comes to our regulatory space, but we do support innovation. And I kind of dislike to see when everybody states that, hey, all these companies are moving out of the United States. And to be honest with you, when I saw this tweets or this uh, kind of analysis announcements about geoblocking U.S. customers, I kind of felt bad because, and I think I tweeted about this, and I think I said that it kind of makes us like, look like delinquents, you know, and it's interesting because right now we are dealing with this global industry and we have all this U.S. customers, we have all this U.S. investors being so much interested in this industry and then being denied access to this exchange platforms. I don't think that's fair. I mean, for this exchange platforms, it's important for them to understand how to be compliant and how to uh, also include, uh, I mean, U.S. customers in, in, in this space. And hopefully that is going to change soon. As I so then you think that um, the problem isn't really that bad. I mean, the fact that U.S. customers have been kicked off the largest exchange and um, being blocked out of other exchanges isn't... I isn't really I that, that bad, is but really and, bad and it's, for U.S. customers, but I don't think that's fair. Right, right. Yeah, I don't think it's fair at all. And um, that's where I start to think about a future in 10 years or 15 years. I think back like, you know, the, the Internet technology um, over the last 20 years has really propelled the U.S. forward. Right. I mean, we the U.S. has Google, Facebook, Amazon, et cetera, Netflix and the FANG stocks. And if you look at the stock market and you take out the tech stocks, uh, right, we're at all-time highs in the stock market. But if you take out the tech stocks, the stock market's flat. And so if we didn't have that boom here, the last 20 years would have looked very different. And so then just imagine 10 years or 20 years from now if we don't have this next boom. And, and, or maybe it, it, ha and it happens, but U.S. people just can't 
can't be involved in it. So um, anyway, that's my fear. Uh, I just hope that's not going to happen. I don't want to sound overly optimistic, but I just hope that that's not going to happen. And I mean, and also just looking at the bright side, I mean, the fact that Binance is coming back in September or so back to United States with compliant, I mean, compliant right. platform to me, that is quite telling. I mean, obviously, majority of their users were from the United States, despite the fact that CZ didn't want to admit that and saying that, hey, we do not allow US, uh, I mean, US users in our platform. And as I said, this was back last year. But my, uh, I mean, they obviously know that majority of their business was coming from the United States as well. Yeah. Yeah, good point. And I don't want to be overly pessimistic either. I mean, I, I believe in the space and I believe in the technology and I, I believe in human ingenuity. And, uh, you know, I think that we'll always find a way. And so we lose Binance. Um, people have to be, are forced to move back to U.S. exchanges and liquidity comes back and, and the market survives. My only fear is, is that these regulators continue to uh, be too draconian uh, hopefully it doesn't happen. And uh, I'm, I'm optimistic that it won't. I was just curious on, on your views on uh, that. So. I hope that's not going to happen. Yes. Yeah. I, I mean, I'm very optimistic about the space. Obviously, I do have strong reasons to be involved in the space. I really enjoyed this space, even though it's quite uh, challenging because as uh, many of my other attorney friends, we have to be on top of every single news of every every single uh, recent uh, regulatory uh, update out there. or But I still enjoy to work with my clients and it's quite a very interesting era that we are uh, experiencing right now. Yeah, awesome. All right, well, we've gone a long time. That was a lot of topics to go through. <laughs> there were still a couple things that I had written down that I wanted to talk to you about, but we're just gonna have to save those for another time because um, I know it's going long. I would like to ask you though, um, what what is the what is maybe the one thing or a couple things that you're really excited about coming uh, down kind of into the ecosystem over the next you know few months or year? Uh, like what developments, projects, or or things are you kind of excited about that you're that you're watching? Yeah, that's a very very good question, and I think for myself, I just hope to see a little bit more, and we're moving forward with that with the investment, uh, uh, with the accreditor investment rules. So I hope we have to see a little bit more changes on that. Uh, hopefully next year. Mm -hmm. Great, yeah, that's a big one. All right, awesome. Well, such good stuff, Alta. Um, like I said, we could just talk about some of this stuff forever. A couple things we want to want to get into, and I know you're doing a big piece on Facebook uh, later, so we kind of skipped over that. Maybe we'll talk about that again later. But I just really appreciate you having uh, having you on the show. W where could people that uh, really like you uh, and want to follow you more? Where could they find you? Uh, so I am on Twitter. Indoni Ulta. I am on LinkedIn. I'm very vocal about my opinions and I'm, uh, they can reach me at oendoni at Zilliaclaw. So I'd love to help everyone in this space. Great. And I'll go ahead and put links to that in the uh, show notes for everybody who's maybe driving or, or can't write that down right now. Uh, but again, Ulta, thank you so much for uh, coming on and we'll talk to you soon. Thank you so much, Mark, for having me. 
Hey, if you like this episode of the Market Disruptors podcast, please help us take this to the top of the podcast charts. Just please do me a favor and rate, review, and subscribe. Taking 15 seconds to just leave a quick review goes a long way in helping us reach more people and disrupt more markets. I really appreciate you listening, and I'll see you next time on the Market Disruptors podcast.